Well, well first off, my name's Luke. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and these Sundays are fantastic. I love these Sundays because it reminds us that we are a family together, that the church is made up out of people, not stone and drywall, that we are the church when we gather here. We're not going to church, we're going to be with the church this morning. And so this morning, um, we're going to, you know, continue in this entire act of worship, glorifying the Lord through our community and through knowing and loving him as we love one another. Um, I have a message for us today that I think is both a challenging message, but I think if, um, if wrestled through, if you are willing to hear the challenge and to get to the other side, I think you'll find that it is a very comforting and freeing message at the end of the day. Um, and before we kind of just dive into that, I want to take one more moment to pause to pray before uh, we read the word together. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to quiet our hearts this morning. Help us to be present here today, not in the past of this past week or in the future of this coming week. Help us to listen to your Holy Spirit's movement in our heart. Might, as I open the word, might you... Say something beyond my words, Lord. Might your words come through uh, today. Might you be giving the message that is needed in each person's life. Might it be timely. And Lord, might you increase and I decrease. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So I have a question that I want us to start out with today. And that is, what is the biggest obstacle in your life right now? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, feel that, you know? What is that that obstacle, though? What immediately comes to your mind? You don't have to answer it, but just kind of... (laughs) Or you can. (laughs) No harm done. Um... (laughs) But take a moment. Think, what is that? What is the obstacle in your life? What are the, what's the, you're like, if only this, right? If only I had more money. If only the people would just listen to me and do what I say. If only, um, if only people um, would get out of my way. If only this hadn't happened to me, right? Um, if only I could get to this place. If only I could get a fresh start. If only, um, you know, whatever you want to fill in there, right? What's the biggest obstacle keeping you from a place of peace, a place of feeling like you're, you're moving forward? What's that obstacle? I want you to hold on to that. I want you to think about it because today, I believe that when we're done, I think you might have a slightly different answer than you might right now that your perspective on what that obstacle is might change. It might not entirely change, but your perspective or the way you come at it might be a little bit different. So today, as we kind of examine this, we're going to be tracing a theme through the Bible. So we're going to be all over the place. But my hope is that as we walk through the Bible and some different stories of the Bible, we're going to see a big picture starting to emerge. Um, this is a this is this sermon's part of a is just a standalone sermon. It's not part of a series or anything like that. Um, and when I was writing this, I was like, "Wow, this maybe could have been a series." Um, so hopefully, hopefully not though. Um, so we're going to start, and we're going to start in Genesis chapter eleven, the first story or place we're going to look to begin to trace this theme. And we're going to be asking the question is, what was the obstacle that faced the people here in Genesis chapter 11?
Genesis chapter 11 might be a familiar Bible story if you grew up going to Sunday school. It's one of those stories that gets told a lot in children's Bibles and in Sunday school classes. But I don't know that we always understand it very well. It's a kind of, it's one of those strange stories of the Bible that's a little bit difficult to grasp. And maybe, um, maybe today we'll uh, bring a little bit more clarity to it than we've had previously. So the Tower of Babel is what we're going to talk about first here. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1, says this, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick, brick instead of stone and tar and for mortar. That's particular note right there is just to say that they're building it with the better materials that they had available. They're like, we're not going to just throw this together. We're really going to build this. And then they said, uh, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the, enti- of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So as a kid, and when I was reading this, like I was just like, so does God have a problem with skyscrapers? Like, like what's what is actually going on in this passage? Like, why is why is he so mad about them building a tall building? Um and we'll, I have some art that I'm going to be showing you throughout the sermon just because I think it'll be fun. Um, so go ahead and put up that first painting there. But there's this famous painting of the Tower of Babel. Maybe you've seen this. Um, it's this kind of, if you look at it, and you, you might be looking at this particular painting, and you might be like, I feel like I've seen a painting like that, but it's slightly different. It's because the same artist painted the Tower of Babel three times. Um, and it looks different in all three of them. And then everybody's kind of patterned themselves after him, after he painted it. But it kind of looks like the Colosseum. If you've ever seen the uh, Roman Colosseum, right? It's kind of got the, it's round. It's got those big high arches and everything like that. So in the painter's imagination, when he was trying to paint the Tower of Babel, he was kind of equating it to the hubris of Rome and the Colosseum and kind of, and kind of painted it like that. But that's probably not what the ancient Tower of Babel looked like. I have another picture here next that shows probably what it was actually going to look like, like a ziggurat. Go ahead and show that next photo. And this is going to be a reconstructed um, ancient temple of sorts. This is more likely what they were building in the Tower of Babel, something with a sequence of stairs, a little bit more blocky in structure, less arches, less kind of uh, classical. And the whole point wasn't necessarily, like they may have been trying to build a very tall tower, but the height is not necessarily the important thing. So like what is kind of going on here? What's this, te- what's this kind of building? And what is the point of them building this Tower of Babel? Well, the whole point of building something like this, a ziggurat, and building it tall, getting it close to the sky, was to create an altar up there, to create a place where they could put food, they could put out a sacrifice, and the idea being, if they put it in the right place and it's tall enough to the sky, they could capture God, sort of. It's like, oh, we're going to distract God and get God to stop at the top of our building, and when he stops, we'll be able to get things we want from him. That's what they're trying to do. And that's a very, like, humanly way to conceive of God, right? God's like, you think you can just build a tall building and then put some food up there and you'll get me to stop and then you think you can control me, like try and get me to 
give you the things that I want and answer the prayers the way you want them to be answered? And so God's problem is not that they're building a tall building necessarily. It's that they're trying to capture him. They're trying to control him. They're trying to manipulate him. God's concern is that if all the people speaking one language are all going off the rails into this false understanding of him and false worship, he's like, oh no, like, it's not that they're going to build taller buildings if I don't change their language. It's that they're all going to be um, not following me if they all keep speaking the same language. If all is one people, they all go astray, then nobody is following me. And so scattering the language and scattering the people perhaps gives a better opportunity for different people to stay faithful to the Lord. And so this story is kind of about people who are trying to control God through human means, right? They tried to control God through human means. They started to think of God as like more like a person and less like God. They were trying to control him. They tried to manipulate him. They were saying, let us do this for our own selves. And the question I have to ask you is what was their obstacle? What was the thing that was keeping them? What was the thing that ultimately stopped them? What was their obstacle? Let's go on to our next passage. We're going to go uh, way forward in the Bible to the book of Daniel. So go past your book of Psalms, if you're going to follow me, past the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, and you'll find yourself in Daniel. I'm going to go to Jan- Daniel Uh, chapter 4. On my Bible, it's 939, but I do not know where that will put you. If always, if you're always, if you're trying to look and you're like, you know, uh, trying to find the book of the Bible... If you're not singing a song in your head, you can also um, go to the front of your Bible, and that'll give you a page number. Just like any book, your Bible has a table of contents. That has saved me more than once, I'll tell you. Um, Because some of these books of the Bibles are small, and they're hard to find. So Daniel's not a particularly long book. So Um, so we're going to look into Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to just jump in here at 4 and 5. So the book of Daniel was mostly written by Daniel, but here we kind of get a break in Daniel's narrative. Here in verse 4 of chapter 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you're like Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, the guy who was over all of the Israelites who are currently enslaved in Babylon right now. So this is not Daniel, an Israelite talking. This is a foreign king talking. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid as I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So this is Nebuchadnezzar writing this part of the book, and he's saying, I was as happy as can be. I was on my couch. I had Netflix going. I had some like Tostito pizza rolls and I fell asleep, and I woke up, and I had an absolute nightmare, and it terrified me. And he's like, wants to figure out what's this going to mean? What does this dream mean? He calls before him all of his magicians who worship the foreign gods, and they were like, we don't know what that means. And he's like, well, I'm, I know who can tell me what it means. I know that Daniel, who he calls Belshazzar, says, bring Daniel to me, and then he tells the dream to Daniel. We're going to flip forward to verse 10. So verse 10 says, these are the visions. This is him telling this to Daniel. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked. This is going to get really strange. Um, says, I looked and there before me, a tree in the middle of the land, its height was enormous. Notice that particular detail, height. It's the second time that's come up, something being tall, right? Height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. Should be ringing a bell from what we just talked about in Babel. 
It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From, its, uh, from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while I was laying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. And then notice the the messenger's um, tone changes here. It's not talking about a tree anymore. And it says, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. So this is a strange dream. It's got this tree and this angel comes down and the angel's like, chop that tree down and tear it down. And then all of a sudden starts talking about a person and that person becoming like an animal for seven years. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, what does this mean exactly? And Daniel kind of sits there and he kind of thinks about it. And this scene plays out and Daniel's like, oh man, like, King, may this dream be for your enemies, not for you, uh, but I think it's for you. And he ultimately says, he says, look, King, you're the tree. You're prospering right now, but you're going to get chopped down and you're going to be out in the wild like a beast. And this is the thing that Daniel told the king. And the king's like, okay. And then he apparently forgot about it. Because um, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to go forward to verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, so a year goes by, and he just kind of forgets about this. And as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not the great Babylon I've built as the royal residence by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? Right? He like looks out and he sees the whole kingdom and he's like, this is mine. I did this. I built this. And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Lord Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I... Still Nebuchadnezzar telling this story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored, and then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of earth, powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then at that time, his sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me and the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne. So this story of a king, we're in the middle of the book of Daniel, which is mostly about the prophet Daniel and his story. And it stops in the middle and we have this letter from the king who was over Daniel, and he tells this story of, this is what happened to me. I have an artistic depiction of this story. Go ahead and put this up. This is a imagining of what perhaps Nebuchadnezzar looked like when he was in the wilderness. Um, Not an image that ends up in your children's storybook Bible, right? Uh, Things not in kids' Bibles. This is one of them, right? Because that is nightmare fuel. 
um, right? Like he's just this hunched over and he's got this beard and he's, and like if you, it's an old, old painting, but you can kind of see that there's like hair growing on his back and his leg and he's got these claws. He became like a animal. He at one point had, was king over the most powerful kingdom in all of the known world. And he looked out and he said, I'm here because of me. This was my doing. I built this. And God's like, mm-mm, right? King Nebuchadnezzar confused his success as coming from himself. He thought that this was something that I did. I achieved. This is my doing. He confused his success as having come from himself. And the question comes then is, what was King Nebuchadnezzar's obstacle? What was the thing that kept him from moving forward? What was his problem ultimately? And then finally, we're going to look at our last sort of example in the Old Testament. We're going to go back in the Bible to Numbers. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We're going to go to Numbers chapter 20. And we're going to show, we're going to tie together, whoever thought we would tie together a sermon with Moses and King Nebuchadnezzar together, but we are. So Numbers chapter 20. And this is Moses. This is the part of the story we know the very well-known part of the story is when Moses comes and delivers the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. He comes and does that. And then he leads them out and he parts the Red Sea and he takes them out into the wilderness. And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That's the part of the story where we find ourselves. It's towards the end of the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They've been out there. They've been wandering because they've been disobedient. They're constantly grumbling testing the Lord, not being faithful. They didn't, they didn't start out great after they got out in, from slavery, and they've not been doing super hot the whole time. And this is what is a, another sequence of, of just difficult leadership for Moses. And we're going to pick up chapter 20, verse 3. And they quarreled, talking about the Israelites. They quarreled with Moses, and they said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It, it has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So they're like there, and they're out in the wilderness, and they're like, Oh, I wish we had died sooner because we're going to die of thirst now, right? Or wish that you had never rescued us from slavery. I would have rather have been making bricks uh, as a slave than be out here in the wilderness. And this is a constant refrain of the people of the Lord, constantly forgetting that the Lord's provision and deliverance and his um, presence with them and they're crying out to Moses and Aaron, the two leader of the peop- leaders of the people, and they're just like, like, why, where, why did you bring us out here? Like, what are you going to do? They're like kind of an angry mob. And Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together, Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered together the assembly together, and in front of the rock, Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. 
Now, did you notice what happened there? Because God gave Moses and Aaron a task. He's like, all right, we're going to provide water for the people. Go grab the staff, come out before the people. And then as you're holding the staff, speak to the rock and the water will come out. But what Moses did instead is he comes out with his staff and he's like, oh, you guys, like you guys are giving me a hard time. Like how often do we have to, I have to come through for you guys. Me and Aaron right now, we're going to bring rock out of this or water out of this rock for you right now. Is that what would make you happy? Right? Aaron and I am going to do it. And then he takes the staff and rather than speaking to the rock, hits it twice and the water comes out. He came and he, his words seemed to say that he was taking a little bit of credit for that provision of the water. Like, me and Aaron are going to do this, right? And I'm not going to do it the way the Lord has told me. I'm going to do it with the staff, which was something that uh, the Lord had had Moses use all throughout his ministry of constantly performing miracles with this staff. And so doing it in this kind of... Um, kind of almost performative way with the staff to get the people excited. And the Lord was faithful. The Lord provided water. I think that can give us a small side lesson of the fact that perhaps the Lord does indeed bless those who even uh, serve him with wrong hearts on occasion. I do have another painting here um, of this depiction, and I like this particular painting. It's a little hard to see, but up in the right corner is the Lord looking down on Moses as Moses reaches up and smacks the rock with his staff, right? Because the Lord is looking down. The Lord is there, and he's not being honored by Moses. Moses is taking the credit. Moses and Aaron took credit for the Lord's provision. So all three of these stories, even though they cover massive part, different parts of the story of the Bible, and they're disconnected by Um, different cultures and times and moments inside of the story, they've all got a theme that ties them together. Each of the characters in the story all have the same obstacle, the same thing that ultimately leads to their downfall. And as I was kind of thinking about this um, sermon, you know, I was trying to think of an interesting way to kind of illustrate it, and I was reminded of... Um, Christmas. I was reminded of this past Christmas. I was at, um, was with my wife, and we'd gone to uh, some of her family's home, and I was playing with one of the nephews. Um, the nephew had out a little switch and was playing Mario Kart. Um, and I was like, ooh, Mario Kart. I can play Mario Kart. Uh, I can win at Mario Kart. Um, and so I sat down, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to play some Mario Kart, and I'm playing some Mario Kart, and I am totally schooling this second grader. Um, <laughs> and my wife gently reminds me after I like completely demolish him in a race um, that I'm playing with the child. <laughs> She's like, honey, he, he's a child. Like, don't, you're not supposed to kind of like let him win, you know, like don't, don't be a jerk, you know, like Mr. 32 year old who's playing like this like game. Um, and I was like, okay, okay, okay. So I started, you know, I was like, all right. And so I'm like letting the kid win. And then like, as we're kind of playing, he kind of like every once in a while, like he would like crash or something. And then I get ahead of him in the race. And he's like, you're not supposed to be in front of me. You're supposed to let me win. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) right. And he would get mad. Even if I came in dead last and he came in second to last, he was mad because somehow he's like, you're supposed to make it so that I win. I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> I can let you beat me. Um, and there was immediately just inside of me a like, well, like, let me just send a red turtle shell towards you and just like, like knock you out of the race, man. Like, there, and there it was, two, two men, both of them acting like children, uh, both, <laughs> both of them having pride and a desire to say, well, no, I can be better at this video game than you. I've been playing Mario Kart, you know, way longer than you. Um, and it's, it's laughable because it's somewhat inconsequential, but, um, but like that pride is something I carry with me, 
right? It's something that I, I, I had a hard time letting a second grader win at a, at a video game, right? And, and, and that was, and even at his age, there was a level of pride that was coming up. Pride is something that has been with us throughout um, all of human history. It is something every single person must battle. It is a huge obstacle. I want to turn and just uh, look at two passages out of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs uh, chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 33 says that wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. Right? Wisdom's instruction, the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says over and over again throughout the whole Bible that the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord, is to understand that the Lord is God and that we are not that the Lord decides what is right and good, and that he ought to be the north star by which we make our decisions in life and follow after. The whole thing that happens in Genesis, if you're familiar with the Genesis story, and Adam and Eve and the eating of the fruit from the tree, is that before they'd even eaten from the fruit of the tree, they had already begun to swell up in pride. They had begun to say, you know what, if I eat from this tree, we will have knowledge of good and evil. We will become the determiners of what is right and what is wrong, of what we should do and what we should not do. We will become our own gods and let us eat from that tree. It was desirous. They wanted to have that. They were afraid God was keeping something from them. At the beginning, even before the fall, there was pride. And here, humility comes before honor. There has to be humility before there can be a raising up to glory and to honor. If we go just the next chapter over, chapter 16 of Proverbs, verse 18, this should sound very familiar. This is a well-known passage. Verse 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Verse 19, better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed, than to share the plunder with the proud. Whoever gives heed to the instruction prospers, and blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. Pride is the obstacle that keeps us from moving forward in God's grace. That might seem really kind of strange. That might not immediately seem obvious in your life circumstances. But let's talk about Pride, because pride can be pride can be subtle. I think sometimes we have this idea of pride as being the person who's puffed up and like, look at me, right? Kind of the King Nebuchadnezzar. But what about Moses? What about Moses, who kind of was this like guy who just was trying to get along and get the people to like him and stop bugging him, right? He wasn't trying to kind of be this puffed-up guy. He was kind of almost the victim in some way. But let's even just think about, like, have you ever wondered why we as a culture just absolutely are in love with underdog stories, right? Like, we love a good underdog story. Um, Some of my favorite ones are, like, the Rocky movies um, or Karate Kid. Um, Too bad Cameron's not out here right now. Um, or Karate Kid, or even the new uh, the Creed movies, which are fantastic. And the, we love these stories because we love to see someone who is kind of coming from nothing or is, has all the odds stacked against them, and they come up and they defy the odds. They work hard, they pull themselves up, they fight, they win, and that's fantastic. But then the movie does so well that we need a sequel, well, what happens in the sequel to all of these underdog movies? Well, usually the sequel has to somehow bring the underdog back down to being an underdog, right? If you think about the sequels to these types of movies, you'll find that usually the success has kind of gone to the head of our protagonist a little bit. They're like, oh, yeah, like I won. Like 
I'm great. And then they eventually get knocked down, uh, either physically or metaphysically, and they kind of get humbled, and they're like, oh, like maybe I haven't really gone all that far, and then they got to start all over. Because we still want to see the underdog. We just find a way to reinvent the underdog. And so we love this idea of someone being glorified when they come from a humble place. And I think that's a, it's a good thing. I think that demonstrates something in our heart that we long for and a value we ourselves ought to strive after. Pride is the biggest obstacle to our growth. Uh, maybe you've heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's kind of a psychological term. Some people have like studied it and kind of said, this seems to be a thing that happens. When you're learning a new skill or you're starting a new job and you're kind of, there's this weird kind of bell curve that happens. When you don't know a lot about something, you tend to think you know more than you do. People who kind of learn and start to kind of learn and grow, they start to realize and they say, oh, actually, I don't know as much like, I know how much I don't know. And then eventually, once you become really good at something, you kind of, re- you kind of lose sight of how much uh, you, you know and other people don't know. But that beginning part of the bell curve of when you're just starting out, if you've ever started to train somebody at your job or somebody new, or you've ever had to um, deal with somebody who's learning a new hobby or a new trade, and they come in and they're just like, I know this. Oh, I know how to do that, right? It's like me pretending like I know anything about cameras when my wife is like, because she's a photographer. She does it for a living very well. And I'm like, oh, is that the ISO? Oh, is that the shutter speed? Like, like she's just like, shut up, Luke. Like, because <laughs> like, 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 I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, I, you know, I don't know. I watch like a handful of YouTube videos and I think I know everything about digital cameras. Um, I don't, you know, and that's, and that happens all the time. If you've ever known someone who's new to something or yourself, if you remember learning something, you're just like, wow, I didn't know how complex this skill was that I was starting to learn. I thought it was very simple after I learned a couple things and I was like, oh, wow, this is way more complex. And the thing is, is that if we have pride, we're never going to learn. We're never going to move out of that beginner stage of thinking, oh, I've got this figured out. That's pretty simple. That's easy. I can do that. And if you've got pride, you're just going to keep believing that narrative and you're never going to listen to the people in front of you who are saying, hey, you don't know it all. Like, hey, actually, there's this whole thing that you're kind of missing out here that you don't get. If we have pride, we're never going to grow. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not advocating for like... Because like pride and, and humility is a Christian value that gets talked about a lot of times. And I don't want to advocate for some sort of unhealthy version of humility, right? This humility that kind of beats yourself up, that doesn't treat yourself very well, that doesn't care for yourself. Like if you want, a, you want a good just general rule of thumb on, on kind of like how to, because humility does not equal beating yourself up. Um, humility equals thinking of yourself rightly or thinking of yourself less, right? Becoming selfless, thinking of yourself less. And you've got to kind of come to this place where you can begin to see yourself as other people see you. A good question, a thought experiment to ask yourself from time to time is to say, am I treating myself the way I would treat a friend? If I had a friend come to me, they're going through something, what, how would I treat them? Well, I would probably encourage them, say that's really hard, and then I wouldn't let them wallow. Well, that's probably how I should treat myself too, right? Good, quick takeaway. Ask yourself, am I treating myself like I would treat a friend? Because sometimes we can kind of get into this unhealthy, like unhealthy humility, humility that almost goes to a place of almost becoming prideful. Um, I was thinking about kind of um, two guys that I knew when I was at college, um, and both of them infuriated me um, because of how they greeted me. Um, 
I would, one guy would come up and he would, he was, I would see him and all, pass him in the hallways and say, hey, how you doing? He's like, oh, you know, and he'd say, how are you doing, Luke? And I'm just like, oh, I'm doing good. And then he would turn to me and he says, no, you don't do good. Superman does good. You do well. I was like, all right, grammar Nazi. Um, I'm doing fine. Um, and so, like, I, he always put me off. And then there was this other guy <laughs> who would, there was this other guy who would come, and he would come up and say, hey, Luke, how you doing? I was like, oh, like, I'm doing, I'm doing good, man. Like, you know, a little tired today, but, like, you know, I'm excited about the plans I got this weekend and stuff. You know, I kind of try and answer kind of genuinely with him. And I'd say, how are you doing? And he'd say, oh, better than I deserve. I was like, oh, well, I guess me too. I am like, here, <laughs> like, where, where's your whip? Let's both whip our backs. Like, <laughs> I always felt like a total jerk because I was like, well, I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess we all just deserve nothing. So, uh, like, I, like, total mood kill. Um, but there was like, one of the things... Like, I can't judge the man's heart. If that's truly where he was at, good for him. Uh, but the way it always came out, because he always asked me first, and I always responded just like a normal person, and then <laughs> he responded that way, and it always made me feel like I was some sort of like, I'm like, ooh, man, this guy is way more spiritual than me. Um, I always felt like some sort of prideful, self-centered jerk after talking with him. Um, and so... I am not necessarily advocating that we become sort of self-deprecating or something like that. But pride does have its way of weaving itself into our lives. kind of want to give us, give us two categories to kind of think of pride. I kind of just kind of labeled these like this. There's the pride of being the hero, right? This is... Um, this is this kind of this is kind of the traditional way we think about pride as kind of having this accomplishment. And when we have the pride of being the hero, sometimes we struggle with imposter syndrome. Right? This idea of that if people were to truly know me, they would find out that I am not as good as the the mask that I'm putting on. We begin to feel a sense of uh, fear because we're afraid of failing. We don't want to take risks because if I fail, then my success will be tarnished. We become insecure, and a lot of times insecurity results in lashing out, right? If you've ever, you ever want to see, like, if you ever wonder what's underneath some people's anger, some people's, um, some people's kind of uh, aggressiveness, um, their sadness, sometimes it's this insecurity. It's feeling alone. It's feeling like, huh, I'm not actually living up to the image I'm trying to show everyone. And the moment it feels like that image is going to be exposed, I'm going to lash out. And then we get into a place where we use others and we use God. God is our cosmic vending machine. We just try and get the thing we want out of him. If we pray the certain way, um, we're using others in order to make ourselves look good, either play the comparison game or just get what we want from them and move on. Pride of the hero in an unhealthy way leads to these things. And then secondly is the pride of the victim. You might not see this immediately. You might say pride of the victim, like victims aren't prideful, right? And maybe not, but like kind of hear me out. There is this idea that we all like to cast ourselves as the main character in our story. We like to think that the world revolves around us, that everybody in our life is a secondary character, that when we're the person who walks out of the door in the morning, the soundtrack of the movie kicks on and we're going through it. Like We think of ourselves like that on default. And if you can't cast yourself as the hero of your own story you will cast yourself as the sympathetic victim of your story. If you can't convince yourself that, no, like, really, like, I'm the hero, I'm successful, you would might as well cast yourself as the victim. And we come into this place where we believe these sentences like, if it weren't for blank, 
if it weren't for my family, if it weren't for my stupid coworkers, if it weren't for this, if it weren't for my kids behaving this way, if it, whatever you want to fill in that blank, right? These are the things that keep me from being and living my success story. If it weren't for the fact that I've had so many obstacles, if it weren't for the fact that I didn't have enough money, right? And what that does is it gets us into a place where we don't see our real need. We get so fixated on things we can't control and on other people that we fail to see our own personal private need, the thing that we ought to take care of for ourselves. And we get to a place of self-sabotage where we actually begin to fear success because it's unfamiliar to us. We begin to sabotage ourselves and then blame other circumstances. And then blaming others and God. We get to a place where we're blaming other people for our circumstances and never taking ownership of ourselves. God is either holding me back or other people are holding me back. And now I don't want to cast this all in black and white. I don't want to say that there's not both and here, that there are hard things that happen to people and those are difficult obstacles to overcome. But when we fixate only on the obstacles and the things that are outside of our control, and we say those have complete control over my life, and we ignore my own responsibility, the things I did that contributed to that consequence, the way I responded to that hardship that created a cascading, um, cascading thing of consequences. When we don't own those things and we push the blame everywhere else and we never look to ourselves, we're going to stay stuck. And we're going to stay stuck because of our pride. Our pride won't let us learn. It won't let us grow. It won't let us take ownership over what we can and moving forward. I want to tie a couple of strings together for us. So if you remember back to the beginning of the sermon, we talked about the Tower of Babel. Big tower reaching up to the sky, place where there was going to be sacrifices and, and perhaps this way of controlling or uh, getting what we want out of God. And then we talked about the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had this massive tree where all of the birds of the tree of the animals sat underneath of this and they were all feeding and nesting inside of that tree and this tree was so tall that it also touched the sky. And then we talked about Moses and the rock and the water that came from the rock in the middle of the desert. And when we think about that, there's a couple things that might come to our heads. Um, if you remember the story of Jacob, Jacob has this dream as he's traveling from his home to live and make it on his own, and he sleeps out in the wilderness, and he has this really strange dream about this ladder or a staircase that leads from the ground up to the heaven, where it touches the sky and where the angels, the messengers, are ascending and descending. It's a passage in Genesis, and and Jacob has this dream, and he puts a rock there, and he calls the place Bethel, house of God. And it's because this is a true house of God versus the man-made house of God that the Tower of Babel was trying to be. He had actually slept in a place where God was, and God was descending and ascending between heaven and earth in this place. And there's that powerful imagery, but if we go all the way forward into the book of John in the New Testament, Jesus picks this up when he's calling his disciples in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus says this. He says, Then he added, Very truly I tell to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's saying, I'm that ladder. I'm the staircase. I'm the place where God meets earth. Right? He's tying together that imagery from Babel and from Jacob's ladder. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus says this. Matthew chapter 13. 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. He says this, He told them a parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest garden of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Kind of a redeemed tree, like one contrasting itself from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Right? Different tree. A true tree that comes from small, small seed, but becomes a massive tree that provides and cares for all. That is what the kingdom that Jesus brought was to be like. And then Jesus compares himself to living water in the book of John. Back in the book of John, John chapter 7. John seven thirty seven. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. And then we see that imagery picked up again by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this, he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the crowd, that they passed through the sea. So he's talking about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. They were baptized in the Moses, in the cloud, in the sea, and they ate the same spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock, talking about the rock the water came from, um, that accompanied them and that the rock was Christ. Amen. Right? See, the Bible is going towards one central theme. The whole entire Old Testament, the whole message of the Bible is to show that Christ is at the center, that Christ is the demonstration of God's glory, God's provision, God's humility. The fantastic thing, the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion is that our God did not stay up high on a throne and demand that we find a way to build a tower to get to him, but rather he came down to the ground. He came to us, he bore flesh, he became like you and me. He bled, he wept, he slept, he ate, he drank, became humbled and became like us. That is glorious. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, I'm just going to read this to you. This is a, part of this is a ancient church hymn. This is something that would have been said or recited or sung in church. I'm going to start in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but to each of you the interests of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the nature of very God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? That is a call for us as a Christian community to humble ourselves, to say that we pursue glory not by puffing ourselves up and living a life of pride, but by seeking to be the servant of all, by following the trajectory of the cross, of following after Christ, picking up our cross, laying aside ourself, and following after Jesus. Let us love one another as Christ has loved us. 
So today, I don't know what you thought was your primary obstacle, and there might still be some significant problems. There might be a lack of money. There might be a difficult person in your life. There might be circumstances you cannot avoid. Those are true and real obstacles. But my challenge is to you is perhaps would that obstacle change if we examine some of our pride, some of our own self-importance, some of our own um, self-concern? I have these three questions that I want to leave you with. We'll put these up on social media today. But I want you to have these questions to take with you as you go into the week. These are questions to be reflecting on, to be wrestling with. Um, So here are the three questions to wrestle with. The first question is this. Is pride and self-reliance keeping you from trusting God or seeking help? Is pride or self-reliance keeping you from trusting God or seeking help? Are we too prideful to admit that we need help, to reach out to others, to get help from them? Are we so sure that I've got this Jesus, I've got this God, I've got this taken care of? Or are we seeking God in prayer? Is pride and self-reliance keeping you from trusting God or seeking help? The second question is, is pride or your public image producing fear, anger, or loneliness? Is your pride producing Uh, or your public image producing a fear that you're going to be exposed, a fear that you're going to be found out and you're not as great as you want everyone to think you are? Or is it producing anger because you feel threatened? Or is it producing a great sense of loneliness because you can't allow there to be vulnerability to bring people close? Is pride or your public image producing fear, anger, or loneliness? And the third question and final question is, pride keeping you from submitting to God's will and learning from others? Is your pride, your desire of how you want your life to be, of refusing to move into God's obedience, keeping you from submitting to God's will and learning from others? I would encourage you to wrestle with those three questions, see what they bring about. Um, At the beginning of service, the answer to my question of what's your biggest obstacle, myself, that's true right? I, my own greatest obstacle is my own pride, my own self-centeredness, the fact that I think the whole world revolves around me, that my problems amount to something fantastically grand, when in the grand scheme of things, they certainly don't. Well, I'll go ahead and close this in prayer and invite the worship team back up. Heavenly Father, thank you for your spirit and your spirit's work in our hearts. Lord, might you help us to be humble, to be loving and caring, to produce love and kindness out of our heart and not self-centeredness and pride. Lord, might we, might we hear a difficult word. Might this be embedded in our own hearts. Might we begin to follow the pattern of Christ and to look to others, to seek to outserve one another. Lord, I ask that you would help make this so in our heart through your Holy Spirit, because it will not happen through our own flesh. Lord, we come as a people who want to be your people. Help us to be more yours each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and sober-minded. The enemy prowls like a lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know 
that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Conduit, you are loved. Thank you for coming today. Please go get your children from Conduit Kids.